Hi folks, we want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church Podcast with our Associate Minister, Pastor Eric Howder. Now this podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries in the iTunes Store. Right now, let's get to Pastor Eric's insightful message. I appreciate Bill and his prayer for me for help with the message because I'll tell you what, um, as I shared with Trish this this week, it was kind of a difficult piecing together as the week went on. Um, So I appreciate that, that prayer and as I was driving here about six in the morning, I was thinking, what a beautiful day that God has given us. Perfect sunshine, perfect temperature, 45 degrees. Flow was shaking a little bit at eight o'clock. My wife, I'm surprised she didn't, sh- didn't show up in a parka, but I thought it was just, just perfect weather. Many of you know about two and a half, three years ago, I used to have perfect vision or what they consider perfect vision. I didn't have, I didn't have to wear glasses. And I suffered through some retina tears or detachments, whatever they want to call it. But what a lot of you don't know is about two years earlier, I had the same thing happen in the other eye. And at first, they didn't know what was wrong with me. The first eye doctor didn't catch it. Uh, so I went to my family doctor, and he thought it was just uh, the normal ocular migraines that I get occasionally. So he, And these were his words. He said, take two of these, these pills, and by tomorrow morning you'll be better. Well, the next morning, I remember, I remember, I prayed, took those pills. It was a Friday morning. I woke up and I was worse. I was slowly losing my vision. Um, he sent me to the hospital that night to get my carotid scan and check my brain, which surprisingly there's something there. And he tells me, well, don't really know what's wrong with you. We're going to send you to a neurologist. As I'm slowly losing my vision, the Spirit of God, I believe, kind of touched my wife and said, hey, you know, that's not where he wants to go. So he said, that, she's like, that doesn't sound right. So she found another eye doctor. He caught it. So long story short, attached retina, torn, whatever. So I had to go through the process. Needles in the eye, take stuff out. Needles in the eye to put stuff in, bubble, um, lay on my side, my left side for about a week and a half, two weeks. So in that time frame, I watched a lot of television. And I watched a lot of, a lot of football. Um, even Ohio State football, I suffered through it. But I also watched a lot of documentaries. And I can remember one late Saturday, early Sunday morning, because um, my sleep pattern was all messed up, because I'd fall asleep during the day, and I'd be awake a good bit of the night. I was watching a documentary on, on how Walt Disney created Disney World. And I don't remember anything about really about the documentary, but every so often there was a commercial loop about... And it showed pictures of the Lion King, the first original Lion King. I've never seen the other one, but so I'm referencing the original Lion King. So it brought me to kind of this perspective as I was thinking of that then, and as I was thinking of that this week. And we all remember when the king, Father Mufasa, falls and he's not getting up. He's dead. I remember watching that at the time with our son, who was about two years old. And many of you know the VHS tape, you pull it out of that hard plastic you put it in the VCR and you hope the person previously rewound it. But we were watching The Lion King. And during that part, I watched my, face, my son's face turn to me and go, 
why isn't he getting up, Daddy? And I was like, okay, that's the saddest thing in the world. Disney, why are you doing that? You did that to Bambi's mom, and you're doing it again. Why? Why do they do that to children? Why? But even more memorable to me was in the movie, the young lion, Simba, was his response. Do you remember it? Now, the reality, there was larger forces at play in the death of his father in that moment, yet it was undeniable that it was his willful act of disobedience and defiance against his dad that contributed to the chaos. And do you remember when that landed on him? When the reality of that, that part of, I'm part of that chaos, do you remember what his response was? He ran and lived a different life. He ran away and lived a different life. Now, it wasn't the worst life ever. It wasn't a life of crime. I mean, he made some little buddies, Hakuna Matata and all that stuff, but he was miles away from where he was supposed to be and from who he was supposed to be at that time. And in running, he abandoned a world that desperately needed him to engage. He abandoned a world that desperately needed him to engage. So why do I mention that? Because I've seen in various stages of church life or ministry, I see that play out in time of people saying, I was about the things of God. I was walking with God daily. And then something happens. And I'm not the worst person ever, but I'm like over here, just hanging out. Now in about a month, there's going to be about 40 youth and families going to the live musical festival. There's going to be a time of worship. There'll be a time of prayer. But there's going to be a lot of emotion there. There'll be some people down there and the mass of people that'll become baptized. They'll express their emotions and say, I'm walking with Jesus today. And I've seen that over the, the course of many years of different worship services, different worship revivals, different worship retreats, where the emotion hits somebody so hard, they get up and it becomes open mic night. They grab the mic, oh yes, Today, I'm, I'm walking with God. I give my life to Jesus. This is what I'm going to do from this day on. I'm walking with Jesus. And I would always stand in the back and wonder, well, you said that about a month ago. And the, the month before that, you said that about a year before that. And now with Facebook, we can see down the road how people walk away from God after they confess, confess to Him that they will follow Him. And they say, it's not, they're not going to be the worst person ever, but they're just going to live over here. They're just going to be hanging out over here, further away from God. You may go, why are you talking about this? Because the question for today is, what does God think of you? What does God think of us? What does God think of us when we step further and further away from Him? That's where we're going today. And we're going to do it by looking at the life of Peter. Peter's one of Jesus' earliest and closest disciples. And he was the one that was all all heart, all heart, but half mind. You know, the guy that's ready, fire, aim type, it's not a bad thing. Full heart, half mind, makes a good NFL fullback. You know, the one that doesn't need to try to think everything through. Just let me just put my head down and go. Full heart, half mind. And it works for some people. So in the middle of Jesus' ministry, 
There's a moment when he asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, he's the only one who has the courage to step forward and say, I think you're the Son of God. And you go, that's right, Peter. Yet there's a moment later when Jesus said, I am going to the cross for you. Peter's the one that stepped up and rebuked him. Don't you be talking about any of that cross stuff around here. And began to rebuke the Messiah. And Jesus had to set him straight. Like, you don't rebuke the Son of God. That's not how it works. When the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus asked his disciples to pray with them. And they kept falling asleep. And remember, the soldiers came to arrest him. Peter woke up. It's the one that pulled out his sword to go to war. Some scholars think it was just his fisherman's knife, but the scripture tells us he pulled out a sword. He's like, get behind me, Messiah, we're going to war. You remember he tries to kill one guy and just hits him in the ear. He's trying to end the dude's life and he just gets his earlobe. Peter just wasn't an organized guy. Jesus tells him to knock it off, and they arrest Jesus, and they lead him to the courtyard. And Peter and another disciple, probably John, follow. And they're in the midst of this entire social sphere that's going on. With all the adrenaline, he sits down, and he watches his whole world, the whole world that he knows, mock and reject Jesus. And in the context, he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. And somebody says, hey, aren't you that guy that was with that guy? Peter says, no, no, I don't know him. You sure? Because I thought you were with him. Peter again says, no, I don't know him. You sure? I thought I saw you with him. Aren't you one of his guys? Peter again says, no, I don't know him. Peter cannot even say his name. And to prove He's not one of Jesus' people. He swears an oath that he does not even know him. And again, Peter does not even say his name. And the text tells us not only did the rooster start crowing, it says that Jesus looked right at Peter. And do you remember what Peter's response was? Do you remember what he did? He ran away. There's a lot of shame in Peter. So we arrive close to the text that Bill read earlier. What does Peter do? Peter goes back to doing what he knew before he met Jesus. He goes back to what is familiar. Peter goes back to fishing. So having decided to return to work, Peter and six other fishermen fished throughout the night. But all night, hour after hour, throwing and hauling in the heavy nets, they catch nothing. Just at daybreak, When it's about time to shut it down and go home, someone calls to them from the shore. And I love what some translations, the English Standard Version and the New King, how they put it, how they put the humility of Jesus, how they show the personality of Jesus. And he calls out, Children, do you have any fish? When they admit they do not, the person from the shore calls Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will catch some fish. They do, and immediately the net is absolutely full of fish. So many that they can't even pull it into the boat. If this sounds familiar, it should. Almost the exact same thing happened when Jesus first called Peter as his disciple. A full night of fishing with nothing to show for it. 
Peter cast once more at the command of Jesus, followed by a large catch of fish. Jesus is recreating his original call of Peter. John notes that the disciples worked all night because that's just what they did. Recording the fact that Jesus appeared just at dawn, was breaking, reminds us of the resurrection when the women came to the tomb, also at the break of dawn. It creates a mood of light breaking through the darkness. And this keeps with the action of Jesus in restoring Peter. Light breaking through the darkness. So when John suddenly realizes who the stranger on the shore is, and he tells Peter, Peter wastes no time. He wastes no time in getting to Jesus. He doesn't stop to think about the fact that the boat is heading to the shore anyway, or that he's leaving the other disciples to handle the large amount of fish. He probably doesn't even know why he's so desperate to get to Jesus, or what he will even say when he arrives to him. He just realizes he's not appropriately clothed. He's wearing a tunic. But he knows he desperately wants to get to Jesus. So he immediately puts on his outer garment, leaps into the sea, and swims to shore. It's not a carefully thought out plan by Peter. But he knows he desperately wants to get to Jesus. Now I can just picture and think, as Scripture tells us, they're about 100 yards offshore. Peter diving into the water, clothed, swimming, Swimming as fast as he can to shore. I can just picture him swimming. And you can picture the disciples rowing past him in the boat. Shaking her head at him. Peter was being Peter. Full heart, half mind. It wasn't a carefully thought out plan. Just the impulsive act of a heart that longs for Jesus. See, God wants us to use our brains to think things through and to make intelligent decisions and choices but more importantly we need to be like peter desperate desperate daily to be with jesus so they make it to the shore and jesus invites them for breakfast it's breakfast with the lord and the scripture tells us the other disciples came in the boat dragging a net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off when they got on land they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Jesus already had a charcoal fire going with fish and bread. But for Peter, the fire is more than just a way to cook breakfast. It was also a fire that would remind him of when he denied Christ. So there are only two places in the New Testament where the term charcoal fire is used. Both are in John's Gospel. At Peter's denial and at the scene of Peter's restoration. John is drawing a clear parallel between the two fires. In fact, Jesus is bringing several elements from previous encounters. Besides the fire, there's an obvious parallel with the original call, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The bread and fish will remind him of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus serving the disciples parallels his humble service to them at the the Last Supper. The cooked fish echoes Jesus eating fish to prove he wasn't a spirit at his first post-resurrection meeting with the disciples. This is much more than a chance encounter 
or a simple appearance. It was full of memory and meaning for the disciples. Jesus asked the disciples to bring some of the fish that they just caught. Peter, Peter immediately goes and obeys. Maybe he feels bad they just left the disciples to bring it in on their own. Maybe now that he's with Jesus, he feels awkward, not knowing exactly what to say. Or maybe he just wants to prove himself by immediate obedience. He pulls the net to shore, and after sorting out the fish, they have 153 fish. We're not sure what Jesus meant in asking them to bring some of the fish they had caught. Perhaps he wanted them to share in providing the meal. Perhaps he simply meant that they should finish the work of sorting the fish and discarding those that they would not keep. But either way, Jesus' request is a catalyst for landing and counting the fish. Jesus invited them for breakfast. See, most of us find it hard. Most of us don't eat with breakfast we don't have a relationship with. Jesus was about relationship. John gives us a lot of detail about this specific scene. Who was there? The exact time of day? The exact number of fish? The clothes that Peter was wearing? How far they were from land? The fact that the net did not break? The exact words used by various speakers? This tells us today to pay attention, not to just what is said, but the entire scene of Scripture. Once the work is done and breakfast is finished cooking, we have a conversation between Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Jesus said the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved, as Scripture tells us. He says a third time, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, and he's talking to Peter, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter would have to glorify God. And after this, in verse 19, after this, Jesus says, Jesus says two simple words, Follow me. And we all know Peter means rock. And Jesus himself had given him the name Peter. In fact, the first thing Jesus said to Peter was when he met him, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. So when Jesus shifts back to Peter's previous name, Simon, son of John, the implication is that Peter's discipleship perhaps is in question. After breakfast, Jesus addressed Peter. Peter had been the one to declare that even if all the other disciples forsook Jesus, he would stand with him to the death. Essentially, he boasted that he loved Jesus more than any of the other disciples did. But now Jesus asked him if he loves him more than the other disciples do. 
That self-sacrificial love. In other words, with all that has happened, do you still stand by your boast, Peter? Peter gives a hearty, yes, I do love you. He does not repeat them more than these, though. Apparently, Peter is focused on what he can affirm, hoping to let the comparison to the other disciples slide by. Or maybe he's getting a bit conceited. After all, Jesus had had appeared to him individually and not to the other disciples. He alone had leapt into the sea to swim to Jesus. And he alone had instantly obeyed Jesus' command to get some fish from the net. When Peter affirms his love for Jesus, Jesus tells him to feed my lambs. In other words, Peter, you don't show your love for me by boasting about it or by being the most demonstrative about it, but by humble service to others. If you really love me, show it by taking care of your fellow believers. But Jesus isn't going to let him off with a superficial response. So he asks him again, Peter, do you actually love me? But this time, Jesus leaves off more than these. And again, Peter gives the expected response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. John emphasizes the question was asked a third time. And the fact that the question was posed three times wounded and grieved Peter deeply. When Peter denied Christ, he gave the answer, the easy answer to the three questions. And now he's twice given the easy answer to the questions Jesus laid out to him. See, Jesus is forcing him to relive his past failure and bringing him face to face with his tendency to take the easy way out. But this time, Peter's bravado is gone. In the past, Peter had attempted to correct Jesus, but now he brokenly appeals to the superior knowledge of Jesus. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, Jesus kept pushing until Peter was deeply wounded. Because that was the only way Peter would really deal with his unfaithfulness. God wants deep. God wants deep, genuine commitment to himself. And is going to keep pushing you and pushing you until you confront whatever it is that is keeping you back from real and total surrender to him. Peter has reached his end. He has nothing more to offer in his own defense or as his proof of his love. And he's appealed to Jesus' all-encompassing knowledge. So now, Jesus affirms the reality of Peter's love. Peter, you once said that you would die for me. You're right. You will die for me. One day, Peter, someone will dress you in clothes that you do not want to wear and take you where you do not want to go to death by crucifixion. But you will go, Peter, and by doing so, you will prove that you truly love me. Then after the appearance and the miracle, after the process of questioning and answers, after the prediction of Peter's faithfulness to death by crucifixion later on down the road, Jesus concludes by simply saying, follow me. These are the words by which he called all his disciples. And with the same words, he renews his call to Peter, follow me. During the ministry, Christ's earthly ministry, follow me literally meant walk where I walk, live where I live. But now, but now it means follow my teachings, obey my commands, and walk in my spirit. This became the new marching orders for the disciples but also for us today. Jesus was so gracious to Peter, but we need to understand, Jesus didn't dismiss Peter's sin. 
He paid for it. Jesus can be gracious here because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus paid for that sin. He looked at him and said, I know what you did, Peter. I know what you did, Peter, and I paid for it. I know what you were part of, and I buried it. Peter, I know what was dominating your life, and I put it in the grave. And Peter, I'm rising to tell you I've forgiven you. And I'm calling you, I'm calling you to move on, and it's the same thing he can do for you and for me if we trust him. I've often wondered how Jesus looked when he made eye contact with Peter. Did his face burn with wrath? Or was it as calm as the sound of God walking through the garden after his first image bearers believed a lie? I imagine it simply was what grace and truth looked like. Though Peter was reminded of and broken by sin, there was hope for him in Christ's words when he warned Peter of his impending denial. They also prepared Peter for his impending forgiveness and restoration. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32, it says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How awesome. Jesus praying then for his disciples. Christ's future work on the cross would pay the penalty for Peter's pride, fear, shame, and condemnation. While Peter had been ashamed of the truth, Jesus would bear shame in the name of truth. While Peter was unfaithful, Jesus was the example of faithfulness. We all have a moments when we overestimate our devotion to God, trust ourselves instead of His Word, and deny the one we love. There may not be a rooster's crow to break the silence of our pride, but how sweet is the sound of grace. The trial that would lead to Christ's death would lead to his resurrection, and thus the foundation and anchor by which we all can say without shame that we have a relationship with the one true and living God. And now Stacy and everybody else comes up as we conclude today. I ask this question, what about you this morning? Where are you in your relationship with the one who loved you with sacrificial love, with the greatest kind of love that you could ever be loved with? Where are you? If Jesus was here this morning and took you aside like he did Peter and were to ask you, do you truly love me? How would you respond? Are you ready to respond to Jesus on his terms? Or are you like Peter, not quite as committed as you would like to be? I ask you, as you walk through this next week and the months, as you walk by the Bible, maybe you haven't picked up as much. As you neglect those relationships that maybe need to be restored. Or you neglect the the prayer life that needs to be daily. Can you hear Jesus asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? As we close the day, if you have a need, come forward. Come forward in prayer. Today's the day you want to give your heart to Jesus and start that that process. Step forward. Do you love me?
He could, he could ask that question to every single one of us. But how will we respond? We want to take a moment to thank all of you, our faithful listeners, for setting aside time each week for the Indian Run Christian Church podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website at www.christforeastcanton.com. That's www.christforeastcanton, all one word, dot com. On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church, I pray God's blessing on you and your family.